0: Welcome, Dave Hammond. Thank you for bringing the word today. Well, it's a joy to be here. I'd invite you to open up your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 6. My wife is Melissa, and I have four kids, and I was merciful on my kids. I said, I'm not going to make you go to uh, two services today. So they're going to come second service, but please uh, take time to meet them. I'm sure they'll be out in the lobby. You'll see them uh, in passing. Um, It is a a blessing to be here. I've benefited from his place indirectly uh, over the years through this mentoring I've had from Doug and from the other area pastors. I've been in this building countless times. I've never been in this room, so this is odd for me, Uh, but it's great to be here, and it's a great privilege to open up the Bible and look at God's Word together. So we're going to look at John chapter 6 starting in verse 60 and going to verse 71. I want to give a couple remarks on the context of this passage before we dive in, so you know what we're dealing with and why it is significant in its original context. At Three Crosses, we've been working through the Gospel of John, passage by passage, uh, now over the course of about six months. We have just finished up John 6, and the thing to know about John 6 is it's one unit, one literary chunk inside the larger context of the Gospel of John. What do I mean by that? Everything in John 6 revolves around two days in the life of Jesus and his disciples on and around the Sea of Galilee. It begins with Jesus' spectacular miracle on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee when he feeds 5,000 men Probably many more women and children besides. Literally tens of thousands of people, Jesus multiplies a little boy's lunch and feeds everybody to the full. And after that, the crowds think, aha, we've got it. This is the guy that's going to lead us in revolution. He's going to kick out the Romans. An army marches on its stomach. All we need is a sword and this guy will provide bread and we're going to get those Romans right out of Israel. They try to take Jesus by force and make him king. And Jesus perceives what's happening, and he's not going to have any part of that. It's a radical misunderstanding of Jesus and his mission. He withdraws. He sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee at night. He himself goes off to pray. And that night, he does a second miracle. He walks across the Sea of Galilee, meets his disciples in the middle of the sea. It's a great storm comforts them. They go across now to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd wakes up in the morning, and there is no disciples and no Jesus. But they're still wildly enthusiastic about Jesus. This is the guy they think is going to make our wildest dreams come true. And so they hear a rumor. He's been spotted at Capernaum on the other side of the sea. The Sea of Galilee, by the way, I looked it up, is, is not that, in terms of uh, surface area, not that big of a difference from Coeur Lake, right? Or, um, uh, I'm blanking. The lake, I can't remember. There's another lake that's really close, but I've spaced it out. Uh, what's the? Um, <laughs> Chelan, that's it, Chelan. It's really close in size. It's a different shape, but in terms of surface area, you think, imagine Lake Chelan. Thank you. Uh, just needed a second. This crowd crosses, you know, hitches a ride in some fishing boats. Some of them probably walk around the the 10 or so miles, 20 miles around the northern edge. They find Jesus, and they are all about what Jesus can do for them, right? Here is this heaven-sent butler that can give me bread on demand. Here is this guy that, above all guys, is going to lead us in our great goal of kicking out the Romans, and Jesus has a word for them. He's like, look, And and I'm not going to rehash everything, but for 30, 40 verses in dialogue with these people, he says, you've completely misunderstood who I am and what I've come to do. I'm not your butler. I'm not your revolutionary. I'm not your tool, right? I am the heaven-sent Savior of the world, the bread of life. I have come into the world to bring life to the dead through the sacrifice of myself. And if that isn't the Savior you want, then you're never going to be happy with me. And so this crowd that goes from experiencing eating this incredible miracle that Jesus provides within 24 hours has, is just totally disillusioned with Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised. John has forewarned us about this response to Jesus all the way back in the prologue to the gospel. John tells us that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And here we see that being played out in this event of John chapter 6 as these wildly enthusiastic fans of Jesus start to see the true Jesus and realize this isn't the Jesus, this isn't the Savior that we wanted, and they walk away. Now, I want to say that that same pattern isn't unique to the time of Jesus or to the first century when John is writing to his original audience but that same pattern is at work in every generation, including our own, including the hearts and minds of people in this room. We bump up against the real Jesus, and we have a decision to make. I'm going to borrow from 1 Peter chapter 2, where he, he uses this illustration. He says, Jesus is a rock, and he's going to be one, kind, one of two kinds of rock for you. He's going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You're going to stub your toe against him and curse him under your breath. Or he will be the cornerstone upon which you build your life. And that's the choice. That's the decision. That's the reality we face in this room. Who is Jesus for you? So that's a long introduction, but please, with your Bibles open, follow along with me. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deposit of truth, your holy, inerrant, and powerful word. And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would work through the reading and preaching of the word in our hearts to make us wholehearted, lifelong followers of Jesus, unflinching that the whole world walk away. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, God confronts us with, I think, one of the most difficult parts of being a Christian, Period. And it is the pain and the difficulty of watching professing believers, notice that John calls them disciples of Jesus, students of Jesus, turn their backs on Jesus and abandon their faith, walk away from Jesus. This is deeply painful, and this isn't any surprise to you if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Sometimes it's the many, and you notice that John articulates that word twice, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it. Or verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We live in a day and an age in Christianity where Jesus himself is increasingly unpopular, where there are no social advantages that accrue to being a Christian or being a member of a Christian church. And we see in our day and age, many, sometimes great numbers of people walking away from this Jesus that they formerly professed faith in. It's no surprise to you, you've heard the statistic before, but sociologists regularly come up with this stat that uh, of Christian high school students, regular in their high school youth groups and, and youth ministries, regular church attenders, by their third year of college, less than 50% will have any meaningful contact with the local church. Now, there's a lot of high school students in this room and, and, and young people in this room, and that's a sobering statistic, and you've got to think carefully, where am I at? with Jesus, is that going to be me? Am I going to be one of those statistics? But also think about that from the outside, and we know the pain of this, watching young people go off to college, and in a few years, they just have no meaningful relationship with Jesus, no connection with him at all. But I would say more painful than the many, the nameless, faceless many, is the betrayal of the one. You notice that this passage touches on that as well in the person of Judas, Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Verse 64. Verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Think about this. We're always used to thinking of Judas as a bad guy. We don't know him as anything else. But for Jesus' original audience, this was Judas. He was one of the twelve. He was chosen by Jesus. He was sent out by Jesus on short-term mission trips, right? They linked arms together and preached the gospel and healed the sick and cast out demons. G- Judas was there. get this, at the Last Supper, sharing communion, the, the Passover meal, with the other disciples, and then, within a couple hours, goes out and betrays Jesus for money. What a betrayal and what a shock to your faith. And this is, too, something that we all have to face, I think, at some point in our Christian life. Few of us get through a life of following Jesus without facing a leader, a pastor, a mentor, a close friend that just cashes it in. I'm done. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm through. I'm quitting. It's been in the news recently. Um, you probably have read this uh, famous church pastor, Joshua Harris, most famous for writing this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anybody ever heard of that book or read this book? It's a generation ago. I'm dating myself, I suppose. Mega church pastor, rising star in evangelicalism conference speaker, uh, pastor of a large church at a young age, posted on Twitter of all places and just said, I no longer consider myself a Christian at all. Done. Now, doesn't make a huge deal impact on me. I don't know the guy personally. He, to me, is just one of the many. But imagine being in his church. Imagine being one of his congregants that heard him preach the word week after week. You were in his home. You shared the Lord's Supper with him. You, you studied the Bible with this man. He was there in your times of grief when you were in the hospital. And then he says, I'm giving up. I don't believe it anymore. It's deeply painful. And certainly, at some point, every Christian will face that as well. The one, your friend, the close person, the person you trusted and relied on, who turns their back on Jesus. Apostasy, abandoning Jesus, is plainly observable part of life. We don't talk about it very much. We don't like to think about it very much. And it's actually a little bit surprising that in this gospel, where John is commending to us, the glory of Christ. He includes this sort of embarrassing information that many people heard the message of Jesus and thought, well, that's not for me. I'm getting out of here. And yet it's pertinent to us, is that's the world in which we live, right? You know this and you know how painful it can be. And so John, the first thing he does is he puts the microscope on unbelief. He draws our attention in and down this this microscope to show us the ugly process of unbelief in the human soul. And he does this through three key words. So with your Bibles open, look at me at verses 60 and 61. And the first is this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, if you're a, a Greek scholar, you don't even have to be a Greek scholar. The word hard is significant. It's the word scleros. What do you call hardening of the arteries? Atherosclerosis, right? And when he says this is a hard saying, I don't mean it's difficult to understand, like Chinese would be a hard language for me to learn. That's not what they're saying. He's saying it's hard in the sense that it's offensive. It's harsh. It has rough edges that don't fit well with my life and with my preferences. And the truth is, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, I don't care what culture you're preaching it in, what era you are preaching it in, it will have hard edges. It will come into that culture like a square peg into a round hole, and it will be hard to stomach. No disciple of Jesus goes long with Jesus without bumping up against something very uncomfortable about Jesus. And those things change culturally, but none of us will escape because the gospel is, at certain places, antithetical to the word, to the world we live in. These people understood what Jesus had talked about. They may have been offended in part by his mode of expression. he go back a few verses where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. But I think they understood completely what he was talking about, where he said, I am the bread of life. I am the exclusive way to a relationship with God, and I bring people into a relationship with God precisely by laying down my life in a sacrificial death So the people by faith in me, a faith participation in me can know the father. The people didn't want to have anything about this. They were fine with Jesus as a revolutionary or as a divine butler, but as a dying savior and the only way to a relationship with God, they were offended by him. Well, that hard word takes another step in the human soul if you go on a little bit further. It says that Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about him. Now, When when John tells us they're grumbling, he doesn't mean they're just muttering under their breath. Grumbling is a theological word, and it has its roots all the way back in the Exodus story. Grumbling is the characteristic behavior of unbelieving people who are seeing God's miracles, seeing God's signs, bumping up against God's authority and deciding, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And so the people of Israel in the Exodus heard and saw the mighty works of God experienced them firsthand, and then grumbled against Moses and against the Lord and against his authority. They were unwilling to trust him, unwilling to surrender their lives to his lordship. And so these people bumping up against the signs of Jesus and the person of Jesus grumble against him, and it's the grumbling of unbelief. Well, that leads to the third thing where Jesus says to them, do you take offense at this? literally in Greek, does this cause you to stumble? Does this scandalize you? It's hard to put it into the proper English translation. Uh, In some places, that same Greek word, think about a place in Matthew 13, I think, where Jesus used that clearly in the sense of falling away, abandoning faith altogether. And that's the end point of people that bump up against the hard edges Who don't humble themselves before the authority of God, but rather grumble in disbelief. Left to its course, it leads to falling away, scandalized, so that we don't have anything to do with Jesus and we walk away even from him altogether. You've seen it in others. You've probably been stung by it, as it's happened in people's lives that are close to you. But here's what I want to focus on in this message today, is to do a little self-reflection on the state of your own soul where is my own heart towards Jesus? Where is my own discipleship at? Am I a disciple for a day or am I a disciple to the death? Am I with Jesus 100% under his authority or am I still holding him at arm's length, trying to figure out if I'm really going to follow him at all? The point of this passage in its essence is not complicated. Hold fast to Jesus. I urge you, hold fast to Jesus. If you're a high school student contemplating college, hold fast to Jesus. If you're a 30-something making your way in your career, hold fast to Jesus. If you're a senior saint, hold fast to Jesus. Walk with him humbly. Walk with him humbly. Receive his authority. Surrender your life to him. And I'm not talking about blind faith that you got to just turn off your brain if you're going to follow Jesus. Look what Peter says later. We have believed, this is verse 69, and have come to know. This isn't blind faith. It's faith rooted in knowledge, rooted in the truth. Yet it is persevering, enduring faith, faith that will hold fast to Jesus, though the whole world abandon him, so God calls us today. To follow Jesus wholeheartedly with every ounce of our being, with every day of life that we are given. Don't drift away. How does this passage equip us to follow Jesus, though the whole world walk away? And that's what I want to focus on the rest of our time. And there are two surprising answers that might surprise you. They certainly surprised me. And the first is this. This passage equips us to walk with Jesus, though the whole world falls away, by reminding us of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. Look at all of John chapter 6. I'll commend this to you for your afternoon Bible study. Uh, I'm not going to go through and show you all these places, but at least three places in John chapter 6, Jesus bumps up against unbelief, and every time he bumps up against unbelief, his message is the same. He preaches the sovereignty of God in salvation. Every time Jesus smells unbelief, he responds the same way. He proclaims the authority of God and the power of God and God alone to save sinners. Why is that? It's hard to draw a connection between those two points, but I think we should. Verse 65 gives us a hint. This is why Jesus told you, uh, the why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. There is a why here. It is because unbelief, although in our day and age it passes off as I'm just being true to myself, I'm just being honest, unbelief at root is the deepest form of pride and arrogance. There is no deeper form of pride and arrogance than to look God incarnate in the face and say, but I'm just not sure, I'm just not sure, I don't think I believe in you. That is pride incarnate, we might say. And that is what John is reacting against, what Jesus is reacting against, and why he takes them directly to the absolute sovereignty of God, God our Savior. Notice how he does this by taking us in turn to each member of the Trinity. He starts there, verse 62. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now let's stop and think about the flow of thought here. Why does Jesus go from offense at him to pointing to his future ascension, which includes, by the way, his ascending on the cross in death, by which he ascends into heaven to glory? Why does he remind them of this? I think what Jesus is trying to say is this. I can tell you're offended, but do you dare take offense at this message? Have you ever considered the risk of unbelief Have you ever stopped and pondered what it will be like on that day to meet me face-to-face in judgment and to see me glorified, wounds in all, wounds that I received for the salvation of the world, and to know that in your life you rejected me. You turned away from me. You didn't want to have anything to do with me because I wasn't cool enough for you. I didn't scratch your itch. Following Jesus appears in this life to be very risky and costly. Jesus is saying, have you ever considered the cost of not following me? Have you ever considered the risk you're putting yourself under when you come face to face with me, ascended on the day of judgment? How optional will Jesus look on that day when you see him lifted up and see his wounds in glory? Jesus is the sovereign one. And although in his ministry, his glory was veiled There's a day coming when his glory will be manifest to all. Every eye will see him, not humbled, but exalted in his heavenly glory. But he moves on to the spirit. The spirit also is sovereign in our salvation. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, by life here, Jesus doesn't mean physical life that we all enjoy just as merely human beings. He's talking about spiritual life, life lived in fellowship and communion with God, the life that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden before sin ever entered into God's creation, the freedom of access and intimacy with God that we were designed to have. This is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the lives of dead sinners. And there is no other way to access this spiritual life. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit on a human sinner, dead in transgressions and sins, and in no other way. There is no human way. This way, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. There is nothing in this worldly plane that can get you that divine life, that relationship with God that we all hunger for, except the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. And notice that the Spirit works in one and only one way. The word, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We might say spirit giving, life producing. The spirit isn't just at work in the world, kind of randomly sprinkling life on unsuspecting people. The spirit works in a particular way through those who hear and respond in faith to the message of Jesus Christ Jesus reminds his unbelieving audience of the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. And lastly, he points to the Father, verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He reminds us of our inability. Similar to what he said about the spirit, the flesh is of no help at all. In fact, no one can even come unless God the Father sovereignly draws souls to Jesus Christ. It's continuing a theme that's run through John's gospel, that God the Father is seeking worshipers. That's John chapter 4. Or from John 6, he is drawing, even dragging people to Jesus Christ or giving people, giving souls to Jesus safekeeping as his gift to his son. There is no salvation out of, outside of Christ, and there is no ability to come to Christ unless the Father grant it graciously. All of this, the Son of risen Lord, the Spirit is the life giver, and the Father is the sovereign one who draws souls to Jesus. All of it proclaims the sovereignty of God in human salvation. It is God's answer to human unbelief, and it is calculated to tumble the pride of every human heart. But I want us to think about this as Christians as well, as those who have the discouragement even daily of seeing people abandon Jesus, of seeing our culture that had at one time this nice veneer of Christianity and that veneer beginning to erode and wondering what does that mean? Well, this is a word of encouragement to us because this message of God's sovereignty over human salvation is a message that divides mankind but it is also a means of grace to those who receive it humbly. Think about this. The whole Trinity is active to save you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in concert, every part of God is active to save you. And what, at the end of the day, makes the difference between those who run the race firm to the end and those who bail out and abandon Jesus partway, it can be really summed up in this way. It is those who trust in God's power to save them It makes the difference between those who endure and those who fall by the wayside. How do you persevere? Trust in God's power to save you. I love the worship songs we sang. Maybe it's because I was already thinking about my message, but every song, proclaimed that truth, Right? God is sovereign to save you, and nothing, nothing can stop his power to save you. And our best response, our deepest response, our fundamental response is to trust God to save you. What sustains us, it is an ongoing living trust, a dependence, childlike dependence on God as Savior, even his ability to save me, knowing everything I know about myself. What does this look like in action? What does it look like to trust God to save me? Am I just a passive spectator? Uh, Well, I don't really have to do anything. All I got to do is trust. Well, yes and no. Trust looks a certain way. Trust has certain contours as it's lived out in your life. And this is the second point that Jesus gets to. How do we follow through with Jesus, although the whole world fall away? The second point he makes is about his word, namely to abide in the word God. Of Jesus. You'll see the emphasis on Jesus' word running through this passage. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Or Peter's confession, you have the words of eternal life. Later in John's gospel, we're just anticipating what he'll say in John chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What marks enduring disciples, real disciples, disciples to the death, from those who are fans or, you know, Facebook friends with Jesus? What marks those who go the distance? It is abiding in the word of Christ. Notice what Peter says. I want to go down to Peter's confession here, second paragraph. Lord, to whom shall we go? Why do we abide in the word of Christ, why do we bide in his particular word? It's because we have no other hope. We have no other love. We have no other trust. We are exclusively coming to Jesus and tr- from him expecting to receive what we need for life and salvation. To whom shall we go? In case you missed it, that's a rhetorical question. Peter's not asking for another idea. The answer is nowhere. There is nowhere else to go. And this is the heart cry of every believer in Jesus. There's no other place to go but Christ, Christ alone. This is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament phrase, Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? The answer is no one. There is an exclusive nature of faith and trust in the covenant-keeping God, now focused in on his son, Jesus Christ. For each of these subpoints, I got a, a nice quote that I came across in my reading. Here's the first one. To whom shall we go? It's from Martin Lloyd Jones, famous Welsh preacher. He says this anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus Christ is not a Christian. Amen. Anyone who has any conceivable alternative to Jesus Christ is not a Christian, right? Again, to borrow from another pastor, some of us, and pay attention, because this might be you, right, are investing in Jesus like we invest in mutual funds. So there's lots of promising things out there. Jesus looks promising. I want to get a little money in Jesus. But there's a lot of other things out there that look promising. I want to get a lot of money in other things too. In case Jesus tanks, I'm not left high and dry. So we want to diversify our portfolio, right? That is how so many people in America and American Christianity think about Jesus, He's one option among many, and I don't want to get too crazy about this Jesus thing in case it all blows to pieces. That is not enduring discipleship. That is not real faith, men and women. Real faith is to put all your eggs in one basket, or as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, to set aside any other conceivable alternative and put our hope firmly and exclusively in Jesus Christ. Secondly, We abide in the word of Jesus, not just because we have exclusive hope in him, but because he speaks words about eternity. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. It doesn't take a rocket science to say that if I could choose a temporary blessing versus an eternal blessing, I ought to choose the eternal blessing, right? It's it's not rocket science. It's clear. And yet, how many of us are very content with with this worldly temporary things while we neglect the glory that God offers us through Jesus Christ that will never be taken away? Here's another quote, this time from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, I've come to reckon that nothing is worth seeking after, but that which will survive the tomb. I've come to reckon that nothing is worth seeking after, but that which will survive the tomb. Now, admittedly, There are many teachers and many religions out there that promise a message about eternal life and give you a 12-step or a 10-step or a 15-step program about how to get there. But notice this. Jesus has unique authority to speak to the topic of eternal life. Why? Because he existed from all eternity. He himself is eternal according to his divine nature. He himself, this is John 5, has been granted by the Father to have life in himself a life that he can share with others. And because Jesus has passed through death and risen victorious on the other side, he has a message about eternal life, and we are fools. We are fools if we do not pay attention to the message Jesus teaches. He speaks about what he knows. He speaks about what he died in order to offer us. And thirdly, Jesus speaks a message that is a word that brings eternal life how do we abide in the word of Jesus? Why do we abide in the word of Jesus? It's because the word that Jesus speaks is divinely powerful to impart eternal life to those who believe it. What Peter is saying here is very similar to the well-known verse that Apostle Paul says, Romans 1 chapter 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. Now, Peter knew that to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, words that have in themselves the power to bring eternal life to all who receive them. Here's a little bit longer quote, this time from New Testament scholar F. F. Bruce: The history, not only the apostolic age, but of the whole Christian era, shows what regenerative power resides in the words of Him who spoke as no one other, uh, no other ever did. Regenerative power in the message, in the words of Jesus. Now, in one sense, this is just continuing a theme that we've seen all through the scriptures. So, Deuteronomy 8:3, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God gives life. Twice in Psalm 119, the psalmist prays, Give me life according to your word. Or 1 Peter 1:23, we've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. What is that seed? The living and abiding word of God, James one twenty one, The implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God gives life. And now we know why it gives life, maybe more particularly. It is because the word of God has as its core fundamental message the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read God's life-giving word, we are connected to the Lord and giver of life, Jesus Christ, the bread of life who came down from heaven that we might live. And I wanna urge you, urge you to make use of this means of grace because this is the dividing line between disciples who walk the course firm to the end and those who fall by the wayside to abide in it, soak in it, to read it, to study it, to surround yourself in it. Women, take advantage of one of the five awesome Bible studies you have to immerse yourself in the life-giving word of Jesus. Men, of course, you have many opportunities as well. Store it up in your heart. Start your day with the word of Jesus. Prioritize Sunday worship, where you hear the word of God read and preached and you have a chance to gather with like-minded brothers and sisters under its authority. This is the means by which we persevere in the Christian life and by which God preserves us firm and to the end, firm in faith. And I want to ask us in closing to examine your faith. Take an honest reckoning of your heart. It's not okay to say, well, okay, that's all this bad stuff happening out there. Really, the drama is being played out in here, in every human heart. It's absolutely clear that Jesus knows the heart condition, and even the eternal destiny of every single person that he interacts with. It's it's emphasized in this passage. Jesus knows when they're grumbling. How? Because he has supernatural knowledge. He knows in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. This is verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knows your heart, and yet, Jesus asks you the same question he asked Peter. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? And I may submit to you that Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what Peter's going to say. He knows the whole story. He knows that Peter is going to boldly say, I'll never go away, deny him three times, and then return with repentance and tears and be restored as an apostle. He knows the whole story. He knows the heart condition of every one of his disciples on that day. He knows the heart condition of every disciple of Jesus in this room today. And yet he asks the question to make us consider our heart, consider our own faith. I remember a pastor saying once that there are three kinds of people. There are believers and unbelievers and make-believers believers and really, that's just two kinds of people, but you know, you know what I'm saying. They're believers and unbelievers and make-believers. And I, I think that's useful, though, because this passage to believers reminds us that past experiences, as good as they were, are not determinative of future reality. We read Psalm 95. The psalmist says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, today. Disciples of Jesus, you call yourself a believer. Today is the day that matters. Today is the day of recommitment to offer yourself again to God as a living sacrifice, to say to God, though the world abandoned Jesus, I will not abandon Jesus. I am yours. And to make use of those means of grace, reflecting on the absolute sovereignty of God to save you and to pick up the word of life that connects us to the power of Jesus if you're here today and you know I don't know Jesus, I know I'm an unbeliever, perhaps somebody brought you here today. When you reflect on this, that Jesus, who has ascended into heaven and will return in heavenly glory, he ascended first on a cross. He was lifted up to die in the place of sinners so that he could offer to the world free salvation, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with God. And that offer is for you. If you will humble yourself and receive the grace of Jesus, put down your pride and trust in the power of Jesus to save you, then even today you can be born again and be made new. But more particularly, and I think most poignantly of all, this passage pushes on make-believers, wishy-washy Christians, people that have a Cultural Christianity, have some sort of affinity for Jesus. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe your grandma was a Christian and told you Bible stories. You have some interest in Jesus. Maybe you like the way it makes you feel. Jesus calls you out of the vague middle ground. He calls you out into the light, and he says, examine your heart. Where are you going to fall? Are you going to be like the crowds? that hear the hard edges, reject them, and ultimately walk away from Jesus entirely or are you going to surrender your life like Peter, trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone? It's time to take an honest reckoning of our faith. Jesus isn't trying to drive anybody away. Rather, he wants us to wake up to our true reality. And if you are sick, to seek the help of the divine physician and go to the doctor. If you do not know Christ, I want to close with this. I urgently urgently call you to receive Christ. Today, of all days, you could change your eternity by coming to Christ, laying down your life, and receiving his free offer of forgiveness. If that's you, then please talk to me. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Talk to one of the pastors or leaders in this church, but don't let this day go by without coming to Jesus and receiving from him and from him alone the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Lord, I pray that we would be firm in faith and firm into the end. I pray that you would receive the praise and glory and honor of a faithful church, a spotless bride. And we proclaim with full confidence that you have almighty power to make this so. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that each member of the Holy Trinity is active in our salvation and cannot be stopped. And I pray that those words would comfort us to the deepest core of our being. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.